From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Chives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to last fall's Mayo Clinic National Health Checkup Survey, Americans believe the most significant health care challenge in the U.S. is cancer. A cancer diagnosis is scary, but some types of cancer are preventable if you take precautions and pay attention to what you eat and drink. On today's program, we'll discuss lifestyle and cancer risk with a Mayo Clinic expert. Some of the things go together. A poor diet, especially diet high in fats, lack of physical activity, a sedentary lifestyle. These all act together, clearly increase your risk of multiple different types of cancer. Also on the program, how surgeons are using 3D modeling to prepare for complex procedures. And why do people faint? All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. A new look at cancer in the United States finds that nearly half of cancer deaths are caused by smoking, a poor diet, and other unhealthy behaviors. I mean, it's a lifestyle issue sometimes. A study by the American Cancer Society found that 45% of cancer deaths and about 40% of diagnosed cancer cases could be attributed to what the authors call modifiable risk factors. Risk factors that you can do something about. That's good news, right? I think so. Along with diet and smoking, the study also cited sun exposure and alcohol use as cancer-causing lifestyle choices. Here to discuss lifestyle and cancer risk is Mayo Clinic oncologist Dr. Timothy Moynihan. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Moynihan. It's good to see you again. Great. Always great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. Moynihan, thank you. So uh, lifestyle choices can certainly affect your chances of getting cancer. Absolutely. There are many things that are modifiable, so you do have some control over the situation. I know many times that people feel fairly helpless in the face of cancer, but there are things you can do to help prevent it, and that's prevention works much better than treatment. So we would and- love to we would love to put me out of business and we'd love to see fewer cases of it. Uh, so anything you do to decrease your risk, I think, is very worth worth worthwhile thinking about. I bet if we were asking people a man-on-the-street type interview, they'd say, well, quit smoking. That's got to be it. But there's got to be more to it than that. It is. But if we look at this particular study, there's a very large study looking at, at many, many uh, cases of cancer. Uh, and the number one risk factor or modifiable risk factor to prevent cancer is stopping smoking. That accounts for about half of the 50% of modifiable risk factors for cancer. So that has a much bigger impact than all of the other ones combined. So smoking still is the number one problem. So getting people to not start would be the the best thing we could do. Uh, And if you do smoke, stopping, because we do know the chance of cancer does decrease as you quit smoking. For folks who are smokers, they maybe think, well, I've done the damage, what's the use? But um, it does improve your chances. Absolutely. We know that even within the first one to two years after stopping smoking, your risk of cancer does decline. Now, it never gets as low as the risk for somebody who never smoked or was never exposed to secondhand smoke, but it clearly goes down, so it does improve your chances. It's not a guarantee, 
but it, it is very helpful. Are we seeing fewer uh, cases of lung mm-hmm. cancer because the the percentage of people smoking in this country has markedly decreased? Wasn't it nearly forty or fifty percent a, a few decades ago, and now it's down to what twenty percent? So I would assume you're seeing less lung cancer. Or? Absolutely, the numbers have clearly gone down, oh, and 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 that does definitely correlate uh, in parallel with the use of cigarette smoke. So men. Uh, Peak smoking was a few years ago, and then when when the men stopped smoking or decreased their smoking rate, their number, lung cancer uh, cases started dropping within the next several years. Women, uh, unfortunately, have trailed behind that, and and their their uh, decrease is much less. But uh, we're starting to see a trend where w- women's cancer, lung cancers, are starting to de- decrease now too. Let's talk about you and I, the uh, Midwestern Minnesota winter type people, and mm-hmm. Mr. Hawaiian Tropic over there, who just got back from a couple of weeks in paradise. Well, it, would, it was no fun being over there, you know, with that ballistic missile coming oh, in from Oh, my goodness. But uh, let's talk about skin cancer. <laughs> and it is, if I'm not mistaken, that the cancer that's increasing the most, melanoma. Yes, absolutely. Skin cancer. Skin cancers definitely are in the in, on the increase, and a lot of that is due to uh, sun exposure. And so that is clearly a modifiable risk factor. That doesn't mean you can't be out in the sun. So it's okay to be in Hawaii and it's okay to be out in the sun, but you need to do it sensibly. Uh, try to avoid blistering burns, particularly using using sunblock, using uh, clothing to block your, uh, the effects of sun. So again, in, in reasonable doses, it's fine. Uh, but uh, there is an excess of skin exposure to that. That still is, is, is a small factor, but it's a very important factor for development of skin cancer. And melanoma can be a very difficult cancer to treat, especially if it spreads. There are some new treatments for it, which we're very fortunate to have, and they're showing some very good responses. Be much better served to not get it in the first place. How does alcohol affect cancer risk? Mm-hmm. Alcohol affects multiple different forms of cancer. Uh, it affects liver cancer, stomach cancer, mouth and throat cancer. There are multiple different forms of cancer that it, it, it does affect. It also can act in conjunction with cigarette exposure. Because the two of those two, those two put together increase your risk more than either one alone. Okay? Uh, but it in and of itself is, is a risk factor for multiple different forms of cancer. So, again, in moderation, there's good things to alcohol. Uh, in excess, it's... Definitely can cause a problem. You say good things to alcohol. You mean the effect on your coronary arteries? Coronary r- reduces your chances of a heart attack. Yes. So, so there are some so, some diseases where it can be very helpful. Um, again, uh, when taken in moderation. Again, when as in everything in life, when they taken to excess, there's always problems. All right. Well, that's there's some good news. I mean, we thought news. you'd all have all bad news for no, us. Well, but, but uh, so we've talked about the the sun and the increase in uh, skin cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about smoking. Everybody knows about that uh, relationship. Obesity. Mm-hmm. That's a, a risk factor for certain cancers too, isn't it? Absolutely is, and it does happen to be a bigger risk factor for women than for men. Okay. And it probably has to do with hor- changes in hormonal levels in the body, and that may be more uh, important for women than for men. But there are cancers of the uterus, uh, uh, of the breast, uh, of other things. But also men who are obese do have a higher risk of cancer too. Uh, again, it's not as dramatic as for women. But uh, some some of the things, things go together. Uh, a poor diet, especially a diet high in fats, which often goes along with obesity, Lack of physical activity, which often goes along with obesity, uh, a, a sedentary lifestyle, um, uh, these all act together 
and uh, as a combination, uh, clearly increase your risk of multiple different types of cancer. Um, what about uh, diet? Is there such a thing as a cancer prevention diet? Um, there are diets that are associated with a higher risk of getting cancer. We're not sure that there's any one diet that will prevent cancer. Uh, again, diets that are very high in fat, high in uh, meat, especially processed meats, meats that are charred or, or charbroiled. Uh, again, if it's excessive in those re- regards, those people do have a higher risk of various types of cancers, stomach cancer, colon cancer, uh, breast cancer, uh, others. Uh, again, in moderation, these things are probably reasonable to have, but it probably shouldn't be every meal you're having processed meats or every meal you're having uh, high-fat content. Uh, we also are learning more about high-fiber diets. They may be protective against colon cancer and other types of cancer. Um, and um, uh, diets that are lacking in fruits and vegetables uh, probably contribute to a higher risk of cancer. What about uh, vitamins and supplements? Are there mm-hmm. any that will truly prevent cancer? Very controversial subject, uh, as all of <laughs> so these subjects that's are. That's why we're asking the Mayo Clinic expert. <laughs> Absolutely. So there are some data that suggest that people with low vitamin D, but again, this is very controversial. If that has an effect, again, it's a very small effect. Okay, um, But there are several studies that suggest that lack of uh, attainment of appropriate balance of vitamins and minerals may have some modest effect. Again, it's nowhere near the impact that either sun exposure or cigarette smoking would have. But there are some, there, there are some, there is a role for a, a good balanced diet that's high in fruits and vegetables. All right, we're talking about the lifestyle and the risk of cancer in the United States with Mayo Clinic oncologist Dr. Timothy Moynihan. Time for a short break. When we come back, debunking cancer myths. Here's one myth or matter of fact eating sugar will make my cancer worse. We'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. And we're talking about cancer with a Mayo Clinic expert, oncologist Dr. Timothy Moynihan. We've talked about the effect of lifestyle on your risk of getting cancer. And now it's time to debunk some cancer myths. Start with your sugar one. Yeah, eating sugar will make my cancer worse. Is that a myth or a fact, Dr. Moynihan? Um, It is mostly a myth. Uh, There are some interesting uh, observations. It's what's known as the Warburg effect. And this was actually described by Dr. Warburg in the early 1900s. And certainly we do know that cancer cells do use sugar to operate. And uh, they may preferentially use sugar, and they may not have the ability to utilize fats or other sources of energy as well. Whether or not cancers actually grow faster on sugar is unknown in the human body. Again, in, in a culture dish, they may grow a little bit faster. But does that have any effect on actual humans in, uh, uh, as we see it? And again, there's not, not good data that supports that. Uh, so we can't come and recommend that you should have a sugar avoidance diet just to try and prevent cancer. Again, there's lots of other health implications of excess sugar intake, uh, diabetes, obesity, heart disease, uh, et cetera. Um, but how much of an effect that ha- actually has on, on cancer is uncertain. So, again, I think the key thing is to make sure there's a balance. There's nothing wrong with having that occasional chocolate chip cookie or bowl of ice cream. You shouldn't have that at every single meal and shouldn't be the only things you eat. If, if that's all you're doing, that's bad for a lot of other reasons. 
I wouldn't have cancer as the driving reason for me to not eat that type of a diet. And there isn't good evidence that if you do have cancer, you ought to avoid sugar. Right. At this time, no. Again, I think, uh, again, I would strive for the balance rather than the uh, absolute avoidance of one thing or another. All right. Next one. Most cases of cervical cancer are caused by a virus that is sexually transmitted. Myth or matter of fact? I think it is a matter of fact. So uh, it looks like cervical cancer is mostly attributable to what's known as the human papilloma virus. Uh, and virtually uh, 100% of uh, cervical cancers in the United States, you can find traces of the human papillomavirus. All right, but important to also note there's a vaccine for that. There now. is a vaccine for that, and that's very important. And we very strongly encourage people to get that vaccine, both young boys and young girls, because although the cervical cancer only affects young girls, the way they get it is from young boys. Yeah. And so if we can prevent it in both, uh, the, the boys are the ones who deliver it, the girls are the ones who suffer the consequences. We also know, though, that penile cancer, which does occur, it's fairly rare, but it does occur, is almost always associated with human papillomavirus. Mm-hmm. And so we could prevent that also. Uh, most people are not familiar with the fact that penis cancer does occur. And it can be a very devastating, difficult thing to treat, just as cervical cancer can be very difficult to treat. Don't even want to think about the treatment. Don't even want to think about the treatment. All right, two doses uh, for the cervical cancer vaccine, the HPV vaccine, two yes. doses, boys and girls, before they become sexually active. Yes, we, that, that is the current recommendation. Unfortunately, the uptake on that is only about uh, 40 to 50 percent of girls get that as recommended, and boys get it even less, even on a 20 to 25 percent range in spite of these strong recommendations to get that as part of your routine immunizations. Yeah, it is a cancer prevention vaccine. Absolutely. All right, how about this one? Treating cancer with surgery causes it to spread throughout the body. That's old school thinking, isn't it? That is, and as far as we know, that doesn't seem to occur. Now, there are certain individual cases where certain types of an operation can seed a local area, but in general, that uh, most Cancer operations do not cause it to spread. And our best understanding of cancer right now is usually by the time we have found it, even before it's operated on, there probably are microscopic seeds that have already flown off and landed in other parts of the body that then emerge at a later date. Yeah, we do know that surgery will not cause cancer to spread. Nor do we think that exposing cancer to the air will make it grow or spread. There's no reason to think that that happens. All right, next up, cell phones can cause brain cancer. Ah, this is something that's been out there a long time. Uh, And now, uh, one of the things that we notice, we don't think that that truly happens. There are some animal models that suggest that there may be a link. However, if we think about it, the first license for a cell phone company was for Motorola in 1985. So prior to 1985, there were no cell phones around. There were zero. Now, Everybody has three cell phones, and everybody uses them continuously. (laughs) If cell phones truly caused brain cancers, we would have seen a huge spike in the number of brain cancers. But if we look and compare the number of brain cancers we see today to back in the 1960s, there's no difference. So why aren't we seeing a difference if it was truly causing it? Now, again, that's not the entire story. Uh, We're going to learn more as we go. But as of right now, there's no data in people that suggests that use of cell phones causes brain cancer. Or, I would, how about living in a polluted city is a greater risk for lung cancer? Absolutely. There are more and more data emerging, especially from some of the emerging third world countries, India and other places, where there are very large uh, pollution problems. 
And we know that those people, non-smokers who live in those highly polluted cities, do have a higher incidence of lung cancer. Mm -hmm. So it's not just smoking. Air pollution does cause it. It's much less of an effect when compared to smokers, but there is clearly some effect there. So, yes, living in a highly polluted area is associated with lung cancer. You know, it's cold here, but the air is pretty clear. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Breast implants can raise your cancer risk. A a very good question. Um, As a general, we would say no. However, there have been recent reports of a very extraordinarily rare form of breast cancer called large anaplastic uh, lymphoma that seems to be associated with a particular type of breast implants. Really? This is associated with the type of implants known as textured implants. This is such a rare cancer, though, even seeing a few excess cases raises our suspicion. It's not a breast cancer. It's a lymphoma. It's actually a lymphoma that occurs in the breast. Oh, okay. So now uh, lymphomas come from our lymphocytes, which is a type of white blood cell that circulates throughout our whole body. They live a lot in the lymph nodes, but they also still circulate throughout the whole body. So every tissue in your body has some of these lymphocytes. For some reason, there has been this little spike in these kinds of uh, breast lymphomas that are seen in association with this particular type of textured breast implant. Now, again, it's very, very rare, extraordinarily rare, but it seems like there's a little blip of it. But for regular breast cancer, no, there's no link to regular breast cancer, uh, but to the, only to this extraordinarily rare form of breast cancer. Uh, most brain tumors are incurable, myth or matter of fact. Uh, yeah. Um, for adults, the most common type of brain cancers are cancers that started somewhere else in the body and traveled to the brain. So they're usually what's called as metastatic. And those are, in general, incurable. Then this, the most common type of brain cancer that actually starts in the brain is similar to what Senator McCain has. It's mm. called a glioblastoma. And unfortunately, those types of brain cancers do have to be considered incurable. They can be treated. They can be made better. People live longer with the treatments. Unfortunately, they tend to always recur. So most types of brain cancer, unfortunately, we do have to consider incurable. There are exceptions to that. There are benign types of brain cancer, such as meningiomas and some other things that can be cured, but that's a minority of brain cancers. Is meningioma benign or malignant? Is it cancer or not cancer? There can oh. be both forms of it. Oh, okay. wow. The majority are benign and happen to not cause too many problems unless it's in a very unusual location that cannot be reached surgically or by some other means. There are malignant forms of meningioma. These are extraordinarily rare, but they do occur. All right, a lot of myths that we have debunked with a Mayo Clinic expert, oncologist Dr. Timothy Moynihan. Thanks so much for being with us. Always a pleasure to be with you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll hear how 3D printing is helping surgeons prepare for the OR. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. From the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Today, kidney stones are in the news. Kidney stones are painful, and many people who have them need repeated procedures to get rid of them. Even if they pass on their own, kidney stones can cause great discomfort. Growing evidence suggests that the incidence of kidney stones is increasing steadily, especially in women.
Mayo Clinic researchers investigated the rise in people who form stones to see if this is a new trend or simply an improvement in the way kidney stones are detected. Their findings appear in the journal Mayo Clinic Proceedings. Now, they found people who had stones that caused symptoms tended to be female versus male, with the highest increase between women ages 18 to 39. Dr. Andrew Rule, who led the study, says this is due in part to the increased use of CT scans to diagnose kidney stones. He says advances in imaging technology have allowed researchers to better examine and classify stones than in the past. He says they're now diagnosing symptomatic kidney stones that previously would have gone undiagnosed because they would not have been detected. For patients who struggle with painful kidney stones, changes in diet can help prevent future episodes, such as drinking more water, lowering salt intake, and cutting back on meat. Now, if you are one of the estimated 1.5 million Americans who suffer from rheumatoid arthritis, you know about the painful, swollen, and stiff joints that are common symptoms of this chronic inflammatory disorder. Mayo Clinic has been a leader in discovering the biomarkers, indicators of health and disease, that link rheumatoid arthritis to the bacteria in your gut. Mayo Clinic Proceedings highlights research like this that explores an individualized approach to treating rheumatoid arthritis. A personalized approach is improving care for many patients. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. In 2008, when Mayo Clinic doctors were planning the separation of conjoined twins, the surgeons asked the Department of Radiology to produce a 3D model of the baby's shared liver. Now, because 3D models are life-size and patient-specific, Surgeons are able to hold and rotate the model in their in their hands, and they get a better sense of how they need to position the patient on the table when they're doing the operation, where they can make their cuts, and whether or not there might be different approaches to the problem that they hadn't even thought of or didn't think were possible when they were studying the case in only two dimensions. The rest, as they say, is history. The 3D anatomical modeling program at Mayo Clinic has grown exponentially over the past eight years, and one area where 3D modeling is now used extensively is to prepare surgeons and patients for pediatric airway surgery. Here to discuss 3D modeling is Mayo Clinic ENT specialist, Dr. Karthik Balakrishnan. Welcome back to the program. It's good to see you again, Dr. Balakrishnan. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. So this, the 3D modeling, it, it's actually been a huge advance uh, in terms of helping for surgical planning. Massive advance, yes. I mean, even the best of us have a hard time converting two-dimensional slices from a CT scan or an MRI into a 3D model in our heads and not losing detail. And this takes that out of our hands and makes us actually able to hold a physical object that we can spin around, we can use to teach patients, we can use to talk to each other. Interestingly, it often turns up little quirks of the patient's anatomy that we might not have noticed on the 2D that actually change the course of the surgery. So we've went from one dimension, an X-ray, mm-hmm. two dimensions, CT scanning and MRI scan, and now we've actually got a model, a 3D model. Pretty incredible, isn't it's it? It's really amazing. And for a while, there were these virtual 3D models that were reconstructed on the computer, but even those, it's not the same. If I can hold this and change my line of sight and see what my approach is going to be to a structure, uh, that's invaluable. And there are actually some surgeons who are making these models to practice new or complex procedures before they actually do it on the live patient as well. First of all, 
if there are people listening who don't know what a 3D printer is, let's yes, go there. Absolutely. So um, 3D printing has become popular in general society as well. Um, there are a lot of folks using those to 3D print everything from gifts to coffee coasters to whatever else. But Ooh, I um, have a keychain at my house made by my son. There you go. Um, <laughs> they even have a pen now that'll doodle in 3D as you move it through the air. But what it is is it basically lays down layers of some kind of polymer or plastic that then harden. And you send the 3D printing machine a data file that tells it what each layer of that object should look like, and it stacks them up. And so since we are here on the radio, and a lot of people cannot see this, people who are watching this on YouTube, which, as a side note, you can do now, you can watch YouTube videos, can see in front of you actually looks like the lower part of a jaw and the upper uh-huh. part of a chest is that a child? Correct. This small. is this is a late uh, sort of a late teens uh, young man in his late teens, and you can compare it to this one, which is a life size model of another patient who was about seven months old. Yeah, and that fits right in the palm of your hand. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and we, what is that other thing that looks like a three? This thing. Yeah. What's so that? So this is a three D <laughs> printed trachea or windpipe for this same patient, the teenager. Okay, the teenager. In a different material and. So the folks who run the 3D printing lab were kind enough to print me one in a soft material so I could actually practice how I was going to reconstruct this windpipe and actually sew it to see how things would come together. That has got to be crazy helpful for the patient immensely. It's incredible. It's great for patient education and for surgeon education. I mean, I'll tell you, before I before we had this option, I would go to the meat locker north of the city and get pig tracheas because I had no other way to practice some of these really complex things. And now I don't have to go to the meat locker. Um, but and, uh, that trachea looks like it's been smashed. And yes. What happened there? So this patient had a disorder where his trachea was both compressed and collapsed. And so it makes became, it a little tough to breathe, doesn't it? It's very tough. And he had been like this for most of his life. And so um, the surgery that we were planning to do for him was one that's been done successfully only at one other location uh, in the country. And so we wanted to prepare for it as well as we could. And it really kind of paid off. Why, why is, uh, is it so difficult? Isn't there such a thing as a tracheal transplant where you can take out that segment and put in a new one? Great question. Yes, that is something that's in development, but it's still in the very early stages and has such long-term implications for the patient. Whereas here, based on using these 3D models and our knowledge of the anatomy, we were actually able to just remove the bad segment and put the good segment back together using his own tissue, which is a much easier thing for him to recover from. Because children and infants are smaller, is this even more helpful the smaller a patient is, or is it just helpful all the way around? It's kind of helpful all the way around. And, you know, to give you an example, so for, for us, we have these models printed, you know, maybe once a month, once every couple months when we have a really complicated surgery. Some of our head and neck reconstructive con- surgeons, when they're reconstructing a patient after a cancer surgery, they print it for every single patient just routinely. So it's mm-hmm. become so standard in some practices here at Mayo, that every patient gets one. You uh, talked about using this for tracheal or airway surgery. What else have you used it for? So we've used it for airway management in patients with very complex spine problems, which interestingly this teenage patient also had. So for those of you watching on YouTube, you can see on the back here there's these purple stripes. Those are spine hardware. Uh, He had a very complicated spine surgery here at Mayo prior to our doing his airway surgery, and we had to manage his airway for the spine surgery. And so we use these to help plan that as well. Can it also help you with your approach, knowing just what you've got to go through and around it to get to the problem? Yes. And for this young man in particular, because of the quirks of his anatomy and the way his spine was and everything, it was getting to his trachea to do the reconstruction was potentially going to be incredibly dangerous. And so having the 3D model helped me to work with Dr. Duraney from cardiothoracic surgery 
uh, and we could work together to plan how we were going to get there and what we would need to do well before we ever actually started working on the patient. How long does it take you radiology? These are done in radiology, right? They mm-hmm. have the big machine, the the three D printer. Yes. How long does it take, and do you know how much it costs? Yeah, so a small model like this uh, young baby that I'm young baby's model that I'm holding in my hand might take four to six hours. Um, a simple tubular model like the trachea you're holding, Dr. Shives, might take something even less. A very large, more complex model with several colors, or for a larger patient, might take up to 24 hours. Um, so it's quite variable. The thing that really takes time is the planning beforehand. The arteries are red and the veins are blue. Pretty amazing. Right. <laughs> and so where is this heading in the future? What's 3D printing going to so, be used for? In addition to this, we're actually looking at 3D printing things to be implanted into patients. So 3D printing custom endotracheal tubes, 3D printing stents, 3D printing implants into, so that can be used to replace body parts, all of those things. 3D modeling and how it can help your surgeon do a better job. We've been with ear, nose, and throat specialist, Dr. Karthik Balakrishnan. Thanks so much for being with us. Amazing stuff. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll answer the question, why do people faint? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Fainting happens when your brain doesn't get enough blood and you actually lose consciousness temporarily. And the medical term for fainting is syncope. Oh. Syncope. All right. You know that? I did not. I always just say fainting. And it's usually completely benign, no big deal. Some people faint at the sight of blood. I might know someone... (laughs) falls into that category. (laughs) Fainting can even be caused by emotional trauma or stress. But in some cases, the cause can be a serious disorder, often involving the heart. Joining us on the phone to explain why people faint is cardiologist Dr. Wen Shen. Welcome to the program, Dr. Shen. It's nice to meet you. Thank you so much to both of you. And Dr. Shen is from the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Hey, how's the weather down there? No, don't tell us. <laughs> don't. We don't want to know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what is happening when someone faints? What's happening in their body? As a matter of fact, just uh, as, as I heard your introduction, that was precisely what happens is that when the brain does not get enough blood supply, a person loses consciousness. So that is common mechanism why a person faints. When there is no blood or insufficient blood goes to the brain, a person faints. And that can happen under emotional trauma or if you see some if you see blood, that that can decrease the blood that goes to your brain. That is actually a very common occurrence, whether in the young people or in the older patients. Essentially is that when there is an emotional uh, trigger, and the body usually, when a person is upset, uh, upset or uh, let's say a person is very excited, and usually what happens is the heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up, and uh, and uh, so the body, that's the normal physiology to excitement. But what happens is that the brain actually sees that, and the brain says, Look, you don't have to be so excited, and uh, let's slow down the heart rate. Let's sl- uh, lower down the blood pressure. So that reflex sometimes goes overboard, and the patient ends up with the low blood pressure or a low heart rate. The combination of the two leads to insufficient blood supply to the head, especially if the person 
is in the standing up position. It happens less so if the person is in the flat position. Perhaps if someone is watching his lovely wife give birth to their beautiful child, that might be a reason why they would faint. <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, I have seen that. Yes. Yeah, I have too. <laughs> but that is that is fainting with minimal consequences. It's temporary. But there are other kinds of fainting spells uh, that concern you, correct? Absolutely. And that's uh, where really that takes uh, a physician or a healthcare provider who really have the expertise and to differentiate the clinical characteristics of benign fainting, like what we just spoke about, differentiating those conditions from potentially life-threatening conditions that cause fainting. So how do you figure it out? History, history, and history. <laughs> <laughs> Sooner or later, if you talk to the patient long enough, they'll tell them what's they'll tell you what's wrong with them. Huh? As a matter of fact, the statistics <laughs> exactly statistics and a lot of clinical studies have suggested if somebody, if an experienced healthcare provider knows what questions to ask, and about sixty to seventy percent of the time, you pretty much can nail the diagnosis after the history. So what are, are some examples of heart problems that can cause serious fainting spells? Well, as always, prior history of heart disease. So, mm-hmm. for instance, if a patient has had a prior history of heart attack, a patient has had a history for cardiac surgery, for valvular structural heart disease, or if a person has had some rhythm abnormalities, and, uh, uh, and uh, also in patients with reduced cardiac function, these are the uh, clinical characteristics and history put the patient at a higher risk for cardiac causes of syncope uh, as compared to, to the benign causes. And that, uh, causes. But now there are also other features. So for instance, somebody has chest pain or palpitations prior to a fainting, that's important. And then one of the features is always If a person has a fainting spell doing physical activities, not after, doing physical activities, let's say uh, doing running, jogging, and uh, it would be very unusual to have a common benign fainting, and uh, usually we pay a lot of attention to if a person has a fainting spell doing exercise. So these are some of the the, uh, uh, characteristics we're looking for. When we take a history with the patient. Why do I feel faint sometimes when I stand up too fast and not others? Yes, and uh, they, that's also a very common occurrence is that uh, just think about when we are sitting and uh, the gravitational force is somewhat reduced of pulling the blood that uh, to the legs because you are sitting. When you suddenly stand up and uh, the, it requires the a certain amount of blood pressure to push the blood to the brain. And uh, when you stand up, gravitational pulling of the blood and uh, to the lower body that is less than when you are sitting or when you are in a flat position. So momentarily, it is not uncommon for a person feeling a little bit uh, of lightheadedness that uh, when a person quickly stands up. But normal physiology is always that uh, that's able to compensate that. So most of the time, patients don't faint other than feeling a little bit of lightheadedness when first standing up. And also, I may add two things. One is that in older patients, 
that especially on medical on medications for hypertension and other uh, uh, medications for heart disease, often they lower the blood pressure. And so as a result that those patients are more uh, prone for fainting. And then another group of patients would be patients with long-standing diabetes. Their nervous system, the autonomic nervous system, may not be able to provide as a strong compensatory mechanism to try to get the blood returned to the heart and the brain. And so those are, again, clinical characteristics we're looking for. When the history tells you that there might be a heart problem as an underlying underlying cause for the fainting spells, what do you do next? How do you confirm that there's a problem with the heart? What we've uh, suggested uh, with uh, some uh, of the evaluation that we think that really as uh, a routine and uh, guideline-based recommendations beyond the history and physical examination, an electrocardiogram uh, is important. Electrocardiogram can tell us a lot of uh, different information, the rhythm, or if there is any prior history of uh, a heart attack. And then beyond that, it uh, should be very uh, based on the clinical presentation. So, for instance, if uh, during your examination, the patient has a heart murmur on the electrocardiogram, it suggests that the patient may have some heart disease with the abnormal ECG. And then that's the time that we would consider, for instance, doing an echocardiogram, ultrasound picture of the heart, that we can see the structure of the heart, we can assess the cardiac function, and then if the patient you suspect to have some rhythm abnormalities, you may uh, put the patient on a holter monitor or some prolonged monitoring to assess the rhythm abnormalities. And then, of course, there are some uh, some more uh, 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 fancy type of studies, but they are they should be de- very individualized. We've learned a lot about fainting that we didn't know before. But one more question, and that's uh, tell us about psychogenic pseudosyncope. That is oh <laughs> yes, it, it's a, it's a it's a very uh, unique patient population. These are the patients that who perceive or they feel and they present as fainting as a emotional reaction in the absence of any documented rhythm or blood pressures. So and they so can they, make themselves faint? Is they that what make them, themselves <laughs> faint and yet uh, without a physiologic explanation. And you, this is a tough group of patients and require a lot of counseling. They're like those goats, the fainting goats. They just faint. That's correct. Yes. All right. Well, thanks so much, uh, Dr. Win Chen, uh, cardiologist, heart specialist from the Mayo Clinic in Arizona on why people faint. Really appreciate you being with us. Thank you both. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at Mayo Clinic Radio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us.
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.